Jack ain't got no friends at all. Say when a man is down, seems like ain't got no friends at all. It seems like everybody wants to knock him around like he's an old ball. I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. You're listening to Petey Wheatstraw's Poor Millionaire Blues, recorded in 1936. As a follow-up to last week's program, The Elected Coup, tonight we confront the authoritarian creep. Our show is in two parts. First, we'll try to learn from the past in order to affect our present moment. I spoke with Peter Cole, a labor historian at Western Illinois University and author of Wobblies on the Waterfront, about his recent In These Times article titled, Want to Stop Trump? Take a page from these dock workers and stop work. In segment two, we'll turn to Tom Papinski, a professor of government at Cornell University, to discuss everyday authoritarianism and the outward signs of weak leaders, narcissism, bluster, and bullying. I should note that I spoke with both of our guests last Thursday, and as mindless speed seems to be the name of Donald Trump's game, a la Italian futurism, this show may already be behind the times. But in what seems timeless fashion, last Wednesday, Republican representatives Steve King of Iowa and Joe Wilson of South Carolina reintroduced a so-called right-to-work bill that would significantly hamper unions across the country and likely lower wages for all Americans. There's nothing new about this, of course, and Cole gives us an account of the decades-long concerted effort to weaken and destroy organized labor. And despite his appeal to blue-collar Midwesterners forged by opposing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, DT has said he is 100% in favor of right-to-work laws, and both House and Senate are controlled by Republicans. And now, lessons from Local 10 on Interchange. When you get out, try to remember everybody that mispeated you. Uh, Peter Cole, thanks for joining me on Interchange. Thank you. I'm happy to be on Interchange. Great. Uh, Peter, I wanted to speak with you uh, because I'd read your article that was published in these times on a work stoppage on the Oakland docks, and I was hoping that we might start with you telling me a little bit about that. Of course. In uh, Oakland, which is perhaps the second largest port on the U.S. West Coast, um, there is a labor union that represents dock workers, people who load and unload ships up and down the Pacific Coast, as well as um, they represent workers in Hawaii and Panama and Alaska and the British Columbia. But in Oakland, um, the members are belong to a, something called Local 10, uh, which historically is the largest um, and most powerful, but also the most activist and most political uh, branch in the entire ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. Hmm. Uh, and the uh, Oakland dock workers on Friday, January 20th, Inauguration Day, um, essentially the membership conducted a coordinated action in which over 90% of those who normally went up reported for work 
um, did not. And as a result of failing to report to their hiring or dispatch hall, um, the port of Oakland essentially shut down for the day because they had approximately 10% of the normal workers on hand. In the case of this union, um, you're actually a, some of the workers are assigned to ships when jobs come in, as opposed to you just show up at your place of work every day, as many of us do, right? Dock workers actually often are dispatched. And so um, by coordinating a uh, absence, if you will, right, um, mm-hmm. they uh, shut down the Port of Oakland, one of the largest ports in the United States. Um, this was not officially an action endorsed by the international or the local, although um, it is 100% clear that it was um, coordinated in advance by the membership of Local 10 to protest the inauguration of Donald Trump. So it was clear from the outset that Trump's presidency would would definitely be anti-union. Right. And so um, the ILWU um, is a sort of quote-unquote famous, but actually, of course, not relatively small, relatively powerful, relatively wealthy and strong union Hmm. that has a long history of activism and really left-wing activism. And the LWU had endorsed Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primaries and although did support Hillary Clinton and um, really are seen by many as the sort of the left wing of the labor movement nowadays and perhaps even since the 1930s. And so um, the great majority of members and officially the union were very anti um, Donald Trump um, going back to last year. Hmm. Not, I, I guess not a surprise. Um, no, not a surprise given their politics. Among other things, the IW supports universal health care, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on many issues, the ILW officially is um, what you might consider a left liberal. Um, but there are many in the rank and file who would be just left of liberal. Um, and this goes back to its inception in the 1930s. Um, and so, yeah, they were very anti-Trump. I should also note that Not only were they anti-Trump because he was seen as anti-union, but the uh, majority of Local 10's membership is non-white. And Mm. Local 10 has a long history going back many decades of really being very anti-racist, very supportive of racial and ethnic equality. Mm -hmm. And so um, the majority now of Local 10 members are Um, African-American. Not only are they politically left, they also, and so they're very pro-union as members, they're also actually on the issue of racial equality, um, very activist. Um, And so, for instance, in 2015, on May 1st, May Day 2015, um, local 10 members shut down the Port of Oakland to protest the killings that had happened in um, South Carolina, where a white police officer killed a black man who was running away. It was caught on video. Mm -hmm. I guess it was Walter Scott Mm -hmm. um, in the Charleston, South Carolina area. And so they shut down the port on May Day 2015, for instance, Mm. to um, protest racism and police brutality. Right. Um, And so they actually have a long history. Uh, That was technically a different shutdown because that had the official endorsement of the local Mm. instead of what happened on January 20th, two weeks ago, when it was not an official action, right? Um, Because to officially act potentially uh, results in employers um, suing. Um, And so there's um, legal 
and political maneuverings involved in any time. So in particular instances, it's a good idea to make an official act, but otherwise the the membership themselves can act without uh, an official capacity. And as you say, there are, uh, I guess, particular ramifications to how the union acts. But you would imagine the leadership of the union were pro that act. Right. Well, it depends on the event, right? But right, um, right. in this case, we could, uh, I would guess, I'm writing a book on Local 10 and the LWU and mm. uh, sort of its history of activism on many issues, including race. But I always also pay attention and so write about their contemporary politics, too. I am interested in the past because I'm interested in the present. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, like most unions, their contracts basically are uh, include a no strike clause, right? Um, and so there are specific instances where they can stop work by the contract, often related to health and safety issues. But not like I don't like the new president. There's no contract. It's not written into the contract, right? No. And so uh, (laughs) because of that, you know, they would open themselves up to a legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, It would not surprise if the shipping association, um, there's a West Coast Pacific Shipping Association called the Pacific Maritime Association, Mm -hmm. which controls, essentially has the official contract. All shippers are a part of the PMA. And so they would go to court and say, this is a violation of the contract. We want money. And they would almost certainly win that. Um, claim. Right. And so, uh, therefore, they, um, you know, sometimes it's with a bit more of a nod and a wink than others. Right. Um, to my understanding, the international as well as the local leadership knew what was going on, but officially um, had no comment, had mm-hmm. no comment ever. Right. Like, uh, and so. Well, with such, uh, a, with such a coordinated action, though, th- does that cause problems? I mean, uh, obviously, you talk about the association. The association is a business association. Uh, right. Um, and so uh, clearly, a, a work stoppage, whether it's endorsed by the, the union officially or not, is a clear act of the union. Is there a, um, a legal problem there if you can say that this is you know, an actual union act, if it, even if it's not endorsed? Potentially, yes, right? But, um, everyone knows Local 10, right? Everyone who actually knows the industry, right? Mm-hmm. So, of course, the, the employers know Local 10. Everyone up and down the coast knows Local 10. Um, people in the Bay Area know Local 10 because it's historically and still um, one of the keys, like why is the Bay Area so um, progressive or radical? For most people, they may not know it, but actually Local 10 is arguably the bedrock, right, on mm-hmm. which the entire Bay Area progressivism has been launched, mm-hmm. right, going back a hundred years, you know, if you visit the Bay Area, you see the port of Oakland from, because it's uh, very visible from either side of the Bay, right? Like, and so um, everyone knows this. Um, It is possible that the PMA could go to court. I don't know if they will or won't. I have no idea. Hmm. Um, I haven't heard that they will. Um, You know, they'll probably just suck it up and it's one more thing Local 10 has done. Mm -hmm. Do you remember mm -hmm. that Local 13, uh, LA Long Beach is actually the largest port in the West Coast and America, and more important economically than Oakland. But nevertheless, Local 13 and none of the other locals did this, right? It was an, an action of the membership of one particular local with a very fascinating and long history of such actions. Local 10. Right. So is so there is a coordinated um, local effort in the sense that so Local 13 didn't do this. Did they have members who are also uh, political or not as political or not as motivated to do uh, the things that the 10 does? 
you know, it depends on the issue, I'd say. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, generally speaking, Local 13 is much more conservative. Mm. And everyone inside the union and the industry knows this, right, that L.A. Long Beach um, has a more conservative and larger membership. Um, and, you know, there are divisions within, right? Like we right. often, uh, from the outside, we just see the union, but inside the union and among the international officers, there's dramatic differences. Mm. And Local 10 is, used to be the power and no longer is. The most famous member of that union, one of the founders, was Harry Bridges. Um, and Harry Bridges is sort of legendary for being a left-wing radical uh, leader of this union for um, decades. Now Harry Bridges has seen starvation A-creeping along that ocean shore Gonna get good wages for longshoremen what Harry Bridges swore. Now the big ship owners, they shook their timber, moaned and groaned and hung their heads. They flapped their fins and they said, we'll get them, cause they fit. But, you know, uh, Bridges, um, as dead, long time, Local mm. 10 is less important than it used to be. Mm. Um, it tries to be the moral conscience of the union, but also the Bay Area mm-hmm. uh, more generally. And I think many people see it as such. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the uh, Local 13 is more business. Gotcha. I gotcha. They, do, they are militant often when it comes to things more directly related to their contract and their, mm-hmm. you know, their conditions. Gotcha. Right? Like, gotcha. Yeah. Well, um, let let me actually read a little bit from your uh, In These Times piece. Uh, uh, the title of that, I think, um, you know, if you want to stop Trump, take a page from these dock workers and stop work. So in that, you write, one key element of the ILWU power is its job dispatch system. In the aftermath of its legendary big strike of 1934, which briefly became the San Francisco general strike, the union basically won control over job dispatch. Quickly, workers implemented a low man out system, which enshrined the idea that the person with the fewest number of hours worked would be the one dispatched. Such socialism in action should not be surprising from a union whose founding members included socialists, communists, and wobblies, the name for members of perhaps America's most radical union, the industrial workers of the world. The ILWU also inherited the wobbly motto, an injury to one is an injury to all. Uh, that's really, um, uh, and again, I, I think uh, I said to this to you before we started that uh, this show for me is a part of my education as much as anything else. And and what a what a wonderful thing to to put forward, right? Socialism that an injury to one is an injury to all, and have an ability to affect it in this way. Uh, low man on the totem pole, basically, or low man uh, out system is a is a wonderful thing. Is that has that been historically always the case, or since 1934? So. Um... Thank you for your kind words. I agree mostly with what you said. Of course, most of what you said is what I wrote. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like, uh, you know, there's a, I'm writing a book and I've written a lot mm-hmm. of things about this union. I was drawn to this union because of their fascinating and very important, I would say, history. Um, because although there are some particularities of their industry, mm-hmm. theoretically, workers in any industry could organize in similar fashion, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, but I do always like to highlight that transportation workers, not mm-hmm. just shippers, maritime transport, but, you know, landed 
transport workers. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain workers essentially have more strategic power than yeah, others, right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so, like, everyone knows it. The employers know it. Business people know it. But the workers themselves know this 150 percent, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons that they're proud and strong is because they know it and they're well organized, right? Like, uh, you know, if, if, if the, the workers who um, manufacture hangers didn't work one day, it would be far less important right. than if workers who move transport cargo, right? Um, and so they are at a strategic choke point, but they're not alone. There's actually lots of workers at various choke points in the global economy, especially mm. as it's um, globalized, right? And mm -hmm. so depends that much more on the movement of goods. This union, right, developed very early on a very radical method of sharing the work. Um, although I always like to point out that, you know, in American history, the idea of equality is a radical idea. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, they're radical in multiple ways regarded to equality. One is that um, they were sharing the work, right? That they would allow workers who had fewer hours worked first dibs, first shot at a job, assuming they reported um, for work that day. Mm -hmm. right? Like uh, that was because very much of the political ideology of many of the original members, mm -hmm. uh, including this founding leader, Harry Bridges, but many in the rank and file. Um, Bridges came out of the rank and file. He was not a leader. He emerged out of the strike of 1934 okay. to later become a leader. Um, you know, but they also apply this notion of radical equality um, to racial equality. Yeah. Right. Um, the idea that um, even then, even in the 30s, when very few blacks worked on the docks, this union took a principled stand um, to incorporate those blacks into the union and to insist that employers treat them equally. Um, now, there's also a pragmatic reason to be anti-racist. It might be in your best interest to be inclusive because you don't want people to break your strikes. Right. Um, in the same way that the AFL-CIO in recent decades has become open to undocumented immigrants because either they're in or they're out. If they're out, they're a threat. If they're in, then they're part of the movement. Right. And so the LWU uh, was very cognizant of this from its inception. And those ideas continue um, to animate. Even Local 13, which earlier I mentioned is relatively conservative, um, is actually quite diverse hmm. in its membership. A significant Mexican-American population, some African-Americans, a few Asian-Americans, right? Um, and so um, even its relatively conservative locals are actually relatively great compared to many other institutions in American life. Hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, that is noteworthy. Despite the differences among them, right. there's actually... From the outside, they share perhaps more in common than uh, the differences, right? Like, right. Uh, wow, um, yeah. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm speaking with Peter Cole about the progressive role unions have played, and perhaps still can play, in combating the authoritarianism of the Trump administration. When you get out, try to remember everybody that mistreated you. Let's look at your your last book, if you don't mind. You wrote a book uh, out from the University of Illinois Press called "Wobblies on the Waterfront: Interracial Unionism in the Progressive Era in Progressive Era Philadelphia." It highlights worker solidarity that transcends racial divisions, as you as you're speaking about now. Uh, but the racial divisions themselves become how the unions are also broken apart in some sense, right? Yeah, so um, thank you for mentioning my earlier work. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there are similarities between my past and present research. Right. Um, you know, like 
um, interested in really the intersections of the labor movement or workers with um, the reality of ethnic and racial diversity in American life mm-hmm. and history. Um, when I was a graduate student and then published my first book, I was looking around for the, the most successful interracial union in the industrial early era, um, the late 19th, early 20th century. And I happened to find them in Philadelphia uh, on the docks. I was not looking to Philadelphia. I was not looking to the docks. I just happened to discover that that's where the ideas that I was interested in were put into practice. Mm. And that was because um, in that time and place, the industrial workers of the world, nicknamed the Wobblies, were really not the first, but the first really great um, radical union that because of their left politics, their anti-capitalist politics, mm-hmm. um, their preamble begins, workers and employers share nothing in common, right? Right. Um, that, uh, that the Wobblies did what no other union in that era was doing, which was going out and organizing African-Americans and immigrants equally in their ranks. Um, so that um, in the 19-teens and early 20s, Philadelphia, which used to be one of the great ports in America, but now is not, um, uh, had a, a workforce that was one-third black, one-third Irish and Irish-American, and one-third European immigrants. Hmm. And they, they organized this workforce with a black leader, a guy named Ben Fletcher. Um, and it was only because of their politics that they would touch such a workforce, but also that these workers came on board and became committed to this union. They weren't all wobblies at the start, but they, after years, they controlled the docks for 10 years and they were fiercely integrated. Hmm. Uh, and that um, after their union was defeated, um, the employers reinstituted segregated workplaces, for instance. Right. Uh, that is, uh, they also gave us the motto, an injury to one is an injury mm-hmm, to all, that, mm-hmm. that many other unions have picked up. The LWU uses it, but I also study South Africa. And mm. the big labor federation in South Africa, COSATU, that's their motto too. Right. An injury to one is an injury to all because oh. it's so common sense. Right, right. Now uh, it, it's been happening for a time. Indiana uh, has a right-to-work law, I believe, and I think 26, 27 other states have right-to-work laws. And now we see there's a, a GOP legislation on right-to-work as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about right-to-work and, and that it's really, you know, a, a, mm-hmm. you know what it really means right i always say that it stands for right to starve mm-hmm. um you know right to work for less is essentially what right to work is because mm-hmm. um it's very clear and the reason that employers are anti-union is because workers who are in unions earn more money and are much more likely to have health insurance and pensions all of that means lower profits for employers right um and so you um right to work is a clever phrase but it um it the translation is is that Workers in right-to-work states earn less money, have less health insurance, have fewer or no pensions, right? Um, so if you ask people, do you want a pension or not? The answer is yes, I want a pension, right? Like So right-to-work, of course, is uh, you know a talking point. Um, Kentucky just went right-to-work. Missouri is on the cusp of going right-to-work. Several congressmen have introduced legislation in the House of Representatives to make right-to-work national. Um, they've tried before, but... The atmosphere is more conducive now than previously. Um, This is a big crisis, no doubt, for organized labor, because um, if unions, if people who are in union workplaces don't have to belong to the union, that means they do not have to pay their dues. That would no doubt hurt the economics of unions. And in the opinion of Republicans, 
unions just give money to the Democrats. And so it's pretty clear that there's political connotations. Right. Um, but for employers, it's clear that it would result in them probably having weaker unions or the end of unions and more workplaces resulting in, um, you know, uh, cheaper labor. Um, right. This is a long term trend. Um, statistics just were released this week that I was reading about that under President Obama, organized labor declined by 10 percent. Right. Um, fewer than 7% of workers in the private sector are union. Um, so I'm, although I'm happy to criticize Trump and his allies, the mainstream Democrats, including Barack Obama, have, did terribly by organized mm -hmm. labor and by workers generally, um, and continued. They didn't create, but did nothing essentially to stop the long-term decline of organized labor. These are long, going back into the 70s, where like uh, coordinated efforts on the part of business, who then were supported by Republicans, um, to push this agenda. And it's been increasingly effective, right? The result is a declining number of union members, which is probably, I would suggest, the number one reason why the middle class has declined, hmm. right? Like uh, it's the from the 50s onward, right? Like uh, union strong, middle class larger, union weak, Middle class, much smaller. Mm -hmm. right? um, now, there's other factors, but I would say that's the primary. Um, what's the good way to look at it? It is undeniable that unions have um, many unions are ossified, that the union leaders continue to hold on to what they've got inst instead of trying to change things in radical ways in order to expand. Right. Um, and so if right to work happens nationally, which is possible, I have no idea, but it's possible, um, you know, unions will have to um, rethink. Maybe this is a opportunity to dramatically improve organizing because they will have no choice. Right. Um, and uh, that's the positive way to think about it. The, uh, the negative, of course, is to further decline of unions. But at this point, honestly, unions are weak. Right. Mm -hmm. The union I study is relatively strong, but it is weaker than it used to be. There's no question. If you ask anyone in that union, were you stronger 30, 30 years ago than now? They would all say, yes, we are weaker. Right? Like anyone who's honest. Um, so you can be very pro-union and accept that unions have, for a bunch of reasons, mostly external but also internal, declined. Right. Um, right. So right to work is on the agenda. Unions will oppose it. I oppose it. I think it's bad for American workers. But, um, you know, unions need to do something different, obviously. And this conversation has been going on for a generation. Right. right? Um, it's not a new conversation, no. but that, like you said, Indiana and other traditional, very heavy manufacturing states like Michigan and Wisconsin are now anti-union. Mm -hmm. It's part of this. It's the fact that it's accelerating is obviously related to the same factors that explain the rise of Trump. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things you'd like to be able to to point to and, and say, you know, these are clear problems that we can give you clear reasons for in some sense and say there are clear actions, join a union. <laughs> right. You know, there are clear ways to fight for yourself and fight for what it means to work. Everybody's afraid, I assume, or or is there right. an actual ideological shift as well where people that used to be pro-union or, or that we even talk about unions. I think there's an interesting thing there too, like the conversation has, has left unions behind entirely. We work singly. We work individually. We don't work with people. There's just a a different workforce now that has no idea what a union even is. Yeah, all those things are true. Or 
also even family members, mm -hmm. households is one way to think about it. Like um, the number of Americans who have a personal relationship with, belong to, or know people who are in unions has declined drastically. Mm. Um, there are multiple reasons for that. Um, you mentioned a few of them. For many um, workers, the work is less collective than it used to mm -hmm. be. We are more isolated. I'm a teacher, uh, for instance, and I work largely individually. At the same time, the teachers' unions are some of the strongest in America left. There's a number of reasons for that. One is that you can't move schools to China, right? right. Um, but another reason is that teachers um, appreciate that they have common interests, mm -hmm. right? And, and therefore should work together to collectively improve their conditions, but also their institutions, schools. Right. Yeah. Working hard on that one too, though, right? I mean, for a mm -hmm. long time, we've been trying to get choice and vouchers and, you know, uh, yes. charters it's and, yeah. There's a coordinated attack, right, because there's a trillion dollars in education, right? right what if right. you take 6% of that and put it into corporate pockets as profit, 60 billion bucks, right, like a, yeah, a year? Yeah, no, it's just um, a shocking thing, Peter, that we could just we just talk about money on those ends of things. Like people that do these things simply are thinking, I'm going to put that money in my pocket and have no interest in the world around them and how it crumbles. Or I get, yeah. you know, I don't know how to explain it otherwise. And it's part of those things that I don't understand the politics otherwise. It seems... That you can't look at someone right next to you and say, I don't care about that person. Yeah. I, tr I actually think, of course, that most human beings in America and other countries do care. Um, we care about ourselves more, but we care about others. Um, and I think a lot of people who would say that they care what happens to other Americans think that by voting for Trump, they were doing that. Right. Hmm. Now, I disagree. Right. Actually, I, I sort of, uh, you know, side with those who think that um, essentially that the rhetoric, the narrative has been um, effectively controlled by those who are actually anti-union and anti-worker, sure. um, but that many have bought into the idea that um, the current system is bad and therefore let's try an alternative. Trump has done a very good job of controlling that. And the best example is trade, right? right. Um, unlike Bernie Sanders, right? Uh, Clinton was pro-free trade until she wasn't. Um, Obama, I think, hurt Clinton a lot by pushing TPP throughout his last year in office which was clearly going to hurt him. And where were the states that um, Trump turned the election, the upper Midwest, which were, you know, voting on trade issues, right? Right. Um, and uh, Sanders won those states that Clinton didn't in the primaries, right? Um, but the Clinton campaign didn't see the writing on the wall, didn't see that she lost on trade, came around too late. Um, and uh, Trump, the one issue that I think he was better on, right, was on TPP. I'm glad he killed it. Uh, and that he delivered that as his first action, I think actually a lot of people take that away and forget about the other issues. Yeah, well, it's that's the, you know it's one of those things that's problematic because it's kind of like the uh, you know the loss leader that you you get people in the door because they agree with you on that one pretty major issue, but you know watch the rest of it go down the drain. Yes. Oh, well. um, yes. Okay. <laughs> so, well, yeah, we'll we'll end on that. The loss leader of TPP. It's time for a break. Earlier we heard Sarah Lee Guthrie, daughter of Arlo Guthrie, granddaughter of Woody, sing the Ballad of Harry Bridges. For the break, we'll listen to the bloke's version of Billy Bragg's cover of Woody Guthrie's All You Fascists Bound to Lose. When we come back, we'll turn to Tom Popinski to discuss the boring everyday nature of authoritarianism. Stay with us for more Interchange on WFHB.
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is the authoritarian creep. In our first segment, we talked with labor historian Peter Cole about the decline of labor, but also the strength that might still be available to us in worker solidarity to stand against the high-speed authoritarianism of the Trump administration. Now I'm joined by a scholar of authoritarian regimes, Tom Papinski, professor of government at Cornell University. The Reuters news agency this week recognized the challenges of covering Donald Trump's presidency by comparing it to authoritarian regimes like Egypt, Yemen, and China. From Reuters editor-in-chief Steve Adler, quote, It's not every day that a U.S. president calls journalists among the most dishonest human beings on earth, or that his chief strategist dubs the media the opposition party. It's hardly surprising that the air is thick with questions and theories about how to cover the new administration, unquote. With the White House's illiberal disposition so obvious that it grounds new standard operating procedures, Papinski leads us down a fine line of interpreting the breakneck chaos, cautioning us against basing our understanding in terms of obsolete totalitarianism's past, but also over-extrapolating the chaos and bluster into fearful, unfalsifiable fantasies, in the process getting suckered into our own alt-reality. Now, the bluster and tweets of weak leaders with Tom Papinski. You fascists are bound to lose. So, uh, as you know, there's a, a, what seems like there's a real worry out there, at least uh, I think where left liberal political academics perhaps are concerned. Uh, I'm sure beyond that as well. But we've entered a scary and perhaps undemocratic times. Um, in our show last week, uh, The Elected Coup, we had guest Jeffrey Isaac professor of political science at IU and Samuel Moyne, professor of history and law at Harvard, both expressed real concern. I think it was Sam who called it one of the most dangerous times in our history. Do you share that fear? Um, it's hard for me to know um, because I think we we all can become uh, pretty involved in the times around us. And I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been an American in 1859 mm-hmm. or 1962. What, what I will say is that certainly uh, in, in the memories of uh, many academics, the future of, uh, of American democracy has never seemed hasn't seemed this unclear in at least three or four decades. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly a time of great interest and great concern to many. Another reason that it struck me that this program in particular and the previous program was attempting to kind of understand some things that both you had put forth, I think, and then uh, kind of as a counter that uh, Jonathan Zunger post that had been floating around there. Zunger, I think, uh, is or at least he's labeled a distinguished engineer of privacy at Google, which must be a kind of oxymoron. Um <laughs> But that his uh, his piece was basically saying this is a trial balloon for a coup. Now, t- uh, I'm not quite sure what a coup is within an elected space. Um, the coup actors are acting within the electoral space, right? Is that that makes that's what's happening in in terms of his particular. Um, contention. And I wanted to come to you and speak because you had your own blog post uh, about authoritarianism and the fact that authoritarianism can happen uh, without you really being aware of it. That's right. Um, One of my interesting uh, academic experiences has been doing research on authoritarian regimes from within an authoritarian regime. And this is the case of Malaysia, which I studied for my my first book, uh, Economic Crises and the Breakdown of Authoritarian Regimes. Mm. And the striking thing for me as an American is is just how comfortable and non-menacing 
perhaps insidious is the is the right word, mm-hmm. but just how uh, everyday, ordinary life is under uh, under an authoritarian regime. And it, it struck me um, that the the vision that most of us have as as you know, if we're Americans who think about authoritarianism, is a much more dark and nasty and sort of repressive environment. Um, and in reality, the everyday life that I experienced and which many Malaysians experience, it doesn't immediately strike you as unjust for many people. And it certainly doesn't strike you as immediately repressive. It leads me to think that Americans or, you know, anywhere in the world, folks who were concerned about authoritarianism may have in their mind a lot more of a discreet and a lot more of a dark vision of what this could actually look like. Mm-hmm. Now, you can interpret that as a good sign that uh, jackbooted thugs are unlikely. You could also interpret this as a very negative sign or a warning sign that um, authoritarianism doesn't show up with a tank. Sometimes it shows up with just a lack of freedom. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, again, I, I, I do think many of us, when we think authoritarianism or uh, maybe we confound it with totalitarianism or we get lost in our terms and we, we drift into Orwellian spaces right. where we, as you say, we worry about uh, not only the fictional but the you know World War II world of uh, Germany and Italy and Franco-Spain and, as you say, jackbooted thugs and imagining that scenario uh, versus, as you say, a very perhaps even-handed uh, dominance or an even-handed repression, a repression you can't even really necessarily see unless, I suppose, you speak out against it. Is that, is that, is that when the jackboots come out? Or That's right. But even then, the jackboots don't always come out. Mm. So I'll give you the example of Malaysia. So I wrote a very critical post about Malaysia from Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And at no time did I have any concern that something was going to happen to me. Hmm. This is a regime that says, basically, you can say what you want online. Oh, there's some restrictions and you may get some notice and the government may be interested in knowing who who you're working with. Um, and I, I have no way of knowing if anybody was watching me. Hmm. But there, I was under no physical threat. I was under no threat of being expelled from Malaysia. Nothing like this. But this is also a regime in which... Um, uh, amassing a public demonstration is a, is a tricky thing. Sometimes mm-hmm. these are fairly heavily repressed. And so it's not this, com- it's not mind control. It's not complete lack of absence of criticism. In fact, most people I know in Malaysia are fairly critical of the government, perhaps even more so than I am. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the options for political change in front of them are fairly restricted, right? Um, elections since 1957, since independence really have never have never thrown the incumbent government out of office. And based on its ability to win votes, it then says, we are a democracy. This is a free society. If you don't, former dictator Mahathir Mohammed used to say, if you don't like me, defeat me in my district. Hmm. So obviously this raises all sorts of interesting questions. Many people would have said for many years now, there's no actual democracy in the U.S. either. Hmm. So I have a a different view Mm -hmm. than that one. Um, I think that there's a qualitative difference um, between a system in which parties lose elections and a system in which parties don't lose elections. Gotcha. And I have no doubt that um, the American political system uh, is more democratic in a, a fairly expansive definition simply because of the fact that Republicans lose to Democrats and Democrats lose to Republicans when you compare it to the available alternatives out there, such as a, a Putin's Russia, where United Russia hasn't lost an election since 2000 
or uh, Malaysia, in which the Barisan Nasional or its predecessor, the, the the alliance, has not lost an election since 1957. Hmm. The, the the trick is that people imagine that democracy equates to things like justice or equality or uh, sort of an idealized form of liberty. And I think that's those are things that may be more likely under democracy. Um, but certainly it's the case that America has allowed voters to show up at the ballot box and vote. And when um, when the incumbents lose, uh, they step down. Right. Uh, it's I'm I'm. I'm impatient with a view that that's not a meaningful distinction, that we don't have political change for that mm -hmm. reason. Mm -hmm. I think possibly there's the sense that, you know, it's like I'm not sure what the political change often is. Um, right. So that's – I guess that's where we get stuck in these in these places where I want to – like I, I desperately want to believe what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> by, by saying that the change makes a difference. You know, uh, and and what kind of difference that is, how it can be, a, as you say, qualitative change if there is a change to be made, and and we end up having what I what I think are top tier abstraction conversations about things that are single issue things like uh, gun control, abortion, um, any number of of top tier conversations that tend to center around Supreme Court issues as much as anything else anymore. Which, as the rhetoric has been in that space for so long now, you better vote Democrat or. Republican so you can get the right court. That's what democracy has seemed to me to be about for a long time now. I think that's right. Um, and the, the point that I'd raise is that there's a, an almost magical quality of that, which is when the party that you vote for is voted in office, you get all sorts of policy goodies that are associated with that party. Um, for example, um, I have no doubt that um, my friends and family would be strictly happier had the other candidate won the U.S. presidential election. Mm -hmm. The policies being implemented would be different. And the reason why, um, the core reason why the policies that I favor are not being implemented is not because the system is biased against me. It's because my candidate lost. <laughs> right. That is true. I mean, so that's, like, that's the clearest, mm -hmm. it's the clearest demonstration of what democratic turnover means in terms of policy outputs. Now, that said... And this is very important. It's reasonable to ask whether or not the sort of democratic competition that I'm talking about takes off of the table certain other types of more perhaps fundamental or structural changes, mm. right? If you don't have the chance to vote for a party that shares your policy views, it can feel that your choices are quite constrained, mm -hmm. right? And I think it's fair to say, especially in a two-party system such as the United States, that a good number of people on both sides of the aisle uh, in 2016, did not like the choice that was in front of them. Right. Um, but I also know that that choice was absolutely monumentally consequential. Mm -hmm. I'm actually hoping that it's less consequential than I think it is. Mm. That the, this election is actually less stark than my worst fears. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm speaking with Tom Popinski about how we might be lulled into inattention only to find our lives ordered by a kind of boring, everyday authoritarianism. When you get out, try to remember everybody that mistreated you. Well, the um, on Tuesday, Sam Moyne said something to the effect that these uh, executive orders and memoranda were not too dissimilar than any Republican would do as they came in and pretty much gutted the Demo uh, Democratic president's executive orders. I think that's right. Um, 
Uh, I saw, for example, today um, on the news that there's reports that President Trump is going to um, is to going to open up some further space for uh, churches to talk politics without losing their nonprofit status. Mm. Um, I, that that strikes me as something uh, I cannot imagine my own church going experience having politics overtly in it. And so I find that distasteful. I'm not sure it's illegal. I'm not sure it's unconstitutional. Uh, I would hope that a president from a different party would overturn that, but it doesn't seem beyond the pale as, as a policy choice that a Republican would implement. And again, that's why that is exactly why many Republicans voted for a, a candidate who they thought was deeply flawed and personally distasteful. And it's also why I, as not a Republican, voted against them. Right. But that's it's not undemocratic to me. The, the areas that I think are more frightening for people uh, are the kind of shadowy nature of decision making within a White House that doesn't seem to be following the normal procedures for acting like a presidential administration. Right. So this is Bannon and Kushner and, and the group that, you know, no one really understands what particular principle of democracy they're upholding or that what their particular private interests are or what their their seeming ideological interests are and, and not having a kind of standard democratic script versus a standard Republican script. That's right. Uh, and I, let's let's distinguish small D Democratic. Sure. Yeah. So consistent with democracy versus big D Democratic consistent with the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. I put it this way. Um, when a, a presidential administration structures itself so differently than than its predecessors. So, for example, um, the appointment of Bannon to the National Security Council. It's just really hard to know what that means. Um, given that uh, even Republicans and Democrats alike have thought that domestic strategy advisors, you know, ought to not participate in national security decision making. It seems uh, particularly frightening, certainly to me, to have that have that be the norm. Right. So you had uh, uh, Karl Rove or Turd Blossom was not in the national security advising business. No. And uh, it's interesting how we find ourselves looking to the great statesman of George W. Bush um, <laughs> of a decade of hindsight. But it seems that Rove and Cheney and Bush all believed that that would be improper, right? It may have been improper, not because they didn't think that, that foreign and national security policy was political, but rather that they thought they would that him being there would, would shape their ability to get good information from, from the other members of the National Security Council. They wanted their National Security Council to give them competing views that were shorn from uh, Rove's perspective on national policy and presidential strategy. And I think that the, it's the conflation of those two things, which is particularly worrying for many of us. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't understand, for example, why our president yelled at the Australian prime minister last night um, and how in the world that is anything other than a mistake. Uh, and I think that in a the, the mere presence of Bannon in that National Security Council leads me to wonder what who's thinking who's making decisions and, and having thoughts about these about those sorts of issues. Well, this is the problem. Most of us are are now casting about for you know that that exact uh, answer, right? We we look at Trump and look at what Trump has done and look at his life and look at people who've written about his life and look at his family and then look at his tweeting and and you think to yourself that guy cannot be president. Done, <laughs> right. right? So who's being president now? You know that's the uh, question, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, let's let's also try to be put ourselves in the minds of former presidents. We all thought back in 2001 that George W. Bush, well, not we all, many Americans suspect <laughs> George W. Bush was not really the president, right? Right. Sure, Cheney's the president, right? 
Yeah. Dick Cheney was the president, or Karl Rove was the president, or some other more shadowy forces. Well, you, were- you couldn't help yourself in that situation, as the president was on vacation for like six out of eight years. Uh, it's a it's a very interesting problem. I think my struggle as someone um, who wants to believe or really can't exist without a belief that there's a possibility for um, an orderly transition in the future, that that this is partially a partisan view on my part that Trump can't be doing this. That I, I have to we have to be critical, I think, of hmm. Of, of views that he is merely a puppet or merely a, an empty gas bag. I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's true. I don't think that was true of uh, president George W. Bush. I don't think that's true of, of Trump, although I certainly don't know. Um, and it's only what day 12. So there's lots, <laughs> right. there's lots that we have, we have, we have left to learn. Yeah. Uh, my assistant producer and editor Rob uh, had said this to me because we had the show on Tuesday and I said, well, I'm having this other conversation on Thursday. So, oh, so much more will have happened by then. Right. So, so, so now we may be invading Australia. <laughs> so, yeah, more good stuff there. Um, well, so, so there's a little bit that you talked about in response to uh, the worry that there's a coup, worry that there's an authoritarian government, uh, and you responded a bit to uh, this idea that Trump could be uh, that kind of leader uh, with your own uh, blog post about um, weak leaders and narcissists and bullies versus actual strong leaders. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so my my view is that there's no there's no productive outlet in fantastical thinking, uh, and moreover that we are in the early days of an unusual administration, and so we don't have a lot of guides guidelines to go on as to what's happening in the White House or how to make sense of it. That has led, I think, some critics of the Trump administration to invent theories of what's going on, which are not based in any any falsifiable reality. So the one that I, I had seen, which prompted me to write in response to it, was an idea that the botched rollout of the uh, executive order last Friday was a trial balloon for a coup. And my point is not to argue that we don't know that that's not possible. I, I, I can't tell you if that's possible or not. But I do think it's important for us to keep in mind that there are many different interpretations of the limited set of facts in front of us. And certainly those of us who write from afar have a responsibility, I think, to ourselves to think more, um, more critically and more circumspectly about what we would have to know to conclude the very worst. Mm-hmm. Well, the, you, you do point out that uh, uh, clearly the leaders such as uh, I think you pointed out uh, Indonesia's uh, Soharto, um, you know, uh, just murdered people. <laughs> so I suppose uh, we'll know when there's a problem if lots of people uh, start being killed. Sure. And I, I mean, I, I will also say that, like, I could be I could be wrong. Uh, and part of my point is to is to allow us. I want to encourage people to read the essay that I'm responding to. And to, maybe there's somebody who knows more deeply or has more facts in front of them than, than the rest of us do, who just can sort of observe from afar and engage with the type of Kremlinology, which was common uh, under the Soviet Union and has become since since then much more common still. What I would say is that uh, the type of leader that frightens me is the type of leader who does not need to tweet his threats and anxieties, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I I conclude this from having studied the Suharto regime in Indonesia, 
uh, and how it came to power. And there's something a, a lot more menacing about a leader who can appear moderate and modest and even-tempered, and yet whose minions, without being asked explicitly or publicly, do his bidding. Right. The, the, the distinction between those two things has implications for those who wish to oppose the president. If you think that this is that there's really been a coup, you need to defend yourself. Mm -hmm. If you believe that you have a, a blusterer in office, then the strategy is to embarrass him. Hmm. Strategy is to is to bloody his nose and show everybody how he cries. It appears he's trying hard to embarrass himself generally, but <laughs> the question, but that's uh, of course not a problem for a guy who's embarrassing all the time. Maybe he doesn't think he is. It's a, it's a hard. That's the problem with Trump frequently is that you just think how can he not be embarrassed by that? But then he's made a career out of being a clown in many ways. One one question I think that and you just touched on it: a ruler, a leader who's who's as you say minions carry out evil. Uh, vile, uh, murderous task without being asked. Now, there is, of course, and I, I don't say this lightly, there's, there's the worry that uh, Bannon has stirred up those kinds of minions. Yeah, and this is beyond my level of expertise uh, and my level of knowledge. And uh, I, I, hope, I hope it's not me just being isolated in a university town in which this stuff isn't, doesn't tend to be visible. Um, but I don't, I don't know how much this is true. And it also could be the case that we wouldn't know it until it's too late. That's comforting, Tom. Unfortunately, you know, let's 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 play out the fantasy if we're sure. engaged in that fantasy. Right. I will. I will say that one thing that really I I can't believe we're not having more news about these threats against um, uh, Jewish synagogues mm -hmm. and and elementary schools. That seems to me to be huge news. Right. This doesn't seem to be newsworthy in the way that I would have thought it would have been. Mm -hmm. And I struggle to put together an argument for why that would be. Mm. We'll have to think on that one. That's right. Well, um, so uh, outside of this, I guess, um, you know, you, you don't particularly seem worried. You you seem to have the sense that if there's a time to be worried, you uh, will probably be aware of it, it seems like, I guess. There's, there's this idea that um, – Kind of akin to the uh, the Tao Te Ching, where you know it starts with those who who know don't speak, and those who speak don't know. And our bluster in chief is kind of like those who bluster uh, don't actually have power. Those who you know quietly smile and kill hundreds of thousands are the ones you worry about. Um, and I guess for me, uh, it's it is how force comes into play, how we deal with the world in those terms with force, and we have a country that is. Uh, overburdened with weaponry, overburdened with militarization. That's honestly where I'm really concerned, right? It's not just to imagine there are minions or, or uh, people who feel now uh, emboldened to take out their racist aggressions on people, but rather that they're also bolstered by military force or police force, uh, that, that this will become a problem. Uh, I, I, I agree that that is frightening. Um, and as someone who's not a gun owner, I, I don't understand. Um, I don't. I just don't know. You know where this sense of weaponization, where that comes from internally. Uh, yeah. But it is deeply worrying to me that there are uh, that there are as many weapons out there as there are, and that they're in the hands of people who I I am not convinced have them, so they can really fight off the government, that, so that they can right. they they can defend themselves. Right. 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 Uh, that does worry me. Now um, I have uh, I guess a final question or a final. Uh, concern also is that a friend a friend wrote to me these words. Now we're never really going to hear again about ending mass incarceration, ending solitary confinement, ending the death penalty, uh, or bringing in a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. It's going to be all white nationalist ethnic cleansing and war with Islam all the time. 
I think that is unlikely to be the case. And I think it ought to be unlikely to be the case because the incentive, if you are opposed to the Trump presidency, I think we have learned is not to wait for Trump to say something to embarrass himself, but to talk exactly about those other things. Mm -hmm. There are people, a majority of American voters who want to vote for those platforms. If we forget that, then we will have capitulated. Mm -hmm. But I think precisely because people do care about their living conditions um, the strategy for a progressive or a Democrat or a liberal is to talk about those. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a delicate conversation to be had about race and white nationalism. But I suspect that there's a time for that as well. Yeah. Uh, that if Trump governs the way that he is, seems to be intending to govern, that it will motivate those who suffer from that to vote him out of office. That's the remarkable thing that democracy permits. That's our show. Thanks to Peter Cole and Tom Papinski for lending their insights as we confront the creep of authoritarianism in the United States of America. Next time on Interchange, we heart the second sex. For Valentine's Day, Jamie Warren joins us to discuss Simone de Beauvoir's 1949 masterpiece, The Second Sex, often cited as the seminal text of modern feminist theory. It offers both a sweeping history of women's subjugation and a compelling theoretical statement on the nature of being a woman. Women, de Beauvoir argues, are other. Humanity, she writes, is male, and man defines woman not as herself, but as relative to him. He is the subject, the absolute. She is the other. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and editor, and Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer. Joe Crawford is executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, right here on your community radio station, WFHB.